Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on the impact of England's calorie labelling policy on individuals with eating disorders, past, present, present and future. Uh, my name's Professor Lucy Serple. I'm Professor of the Psychology of Eating Disorders at UCL and also Clinical Lead for Adult Eating Disorders at North East London Foundation Trust. I'll be chairing today's lecture. And it's a great pleasure to introduce today's speakers, Nora Trumpeter and Yvonne Dirks. Nora Trumpeter is a research fellow at the Institute of Child Health, which is part of UCL. She has a background in developmental psychology and she completed her PhD in 2022 at Macquarie University in Australia. Her research is focused on identifying social and emotional risk factors for the development of eating disorder symptoms in adolescents. Yvonne Dirks is Research Fellow at the Research Department of Behavioural Sciences and Health at UCL. Her background is in health sciences, psychology and clinical epidemiology. And she completed her PhD at Erasmus Medical Centre in, in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And her research is focused on the development of eating disorder symptoms in adolescents and on identifying shared risk factors between obesity and eating disorders. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we'll have some time at the end of the lecture for questions. The way those are submitted is by uh, at Slido. So if you type into your web browser, sli.do, then that will take you to the, um, the, the Slido website. And then you need to type in the event code, which is hashtag labels. That will take you to a list of questions that people have already asked. You can enter your questions at any point during the talks and we will then, I'll chair the, the questions um, when the presenters have finished. So I always find it useful to type in my question as I think of it. So that can be during the talk, it won't disturb the presenters. And then, like I say, I'll be chairing at the end. Um, and so I think that's everything that I need to tell you. I'm now going to hand over to Nora and Yvonne to begin their talk. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lucy, and thank you for this uh, wonderful introduction. Um, so uh, today, Nora and I will be talking about the England's uh, calorie labeling policy and how this might affect uh, individuals living with eating disorders. So to give an outline of our talk, it, we will start first start with uh, explaining what the calorie labeling policy is and why this has been introduced. Secondly, I will also explain how this might uh, affect people living with eating disorders. Um, and then from there, Nora will continue focusing on what the evidence says about that scientific evidence and what the next step forward uh, could be from there. Um, so what is the calorie labeling policy and why has this been introduced? So the new uh, calorie labeling policy was introduced in April 2022 in England as part of the new policy program from the government to tackle obesity. And this uh, requires large businesses, so restaurants and cafes with over 250 employees to uh, display calorie information on uh, the point uh, where the customers make their food choices. So, for instance, on the restaurant, the physical restaurant menus, but also on ordering screens or, for instance, uh, fast food chains. Um, also on online menus and food delivery platforms such as Uber Eats and uh, Just Eat. Um, businesses can also uh, uh, permit to provide, uh, are also permitted to provide a menu uh, without calorie labeling information, but only if this would be a request of the customer. So why is there calorie labeling on menus? Um, and this has been a public health policy to tackle overweight and obesity. And overweight and obesity is a major public health concern in um, the UK, as it, at the moment, 64% of the uh, adult population of the UK is uh, uh, living with overweight or obesity. And as you can see in the figure, this there has been um, a dramatic increase in the rates of overweight and obesity in the UK. So going from 53% uh, uh, within in 1993 to 64% in um, 2019. 
Um, overweight and obesity are not affecting the UK population in an equal way. Uh, you can see here that uh, overweight and obesity are more prevalent among those who are living in deprivation, um, among those who are living with disabilities, among uh, people from uh, minority ethnical backgrounds and those with uh, lower qualifications. And there are many adverse consequences of living with overweight and obesity. It's, uh, physically, it will put you at risk for a number of diseases, including various types of uh, cancer, type 2 diabetes, uh, coronary heart, heart disease. And we've also seen from the COVID-19 pandemic that people with overweight and obesity are more severely affected with an infection and have a higher risk of mortality. Uh, it can also come along with uh, mental health problems, such as the depression and anxiety, which can, for instance, be the result of so, uh, body dissatisfaction or other insecurities related to obesity. Um, so the question why people uh, develop a higher weight status and others do not is very complex. And there are many different risk factors involved, uh, including a combination of genetics, environmental condition and individual risk factors. But when we focus on the environment and particularly on the food environment, this has been dramatically uh, changed over the past decades. We now live in a so-called obesogenic food environment in which energy dense, um, highly palatable foods are always readily available for you. They're very easily accessible and they're also mostly cheaper compared to uh, other healthier options. And public health policies aim to change uh, the food environment can be divided into bottom-up and top-down policies. And bottom-up policies are policies um, that are um, uh, changing, actually changing physically the food environment for everyone. So examples of these are the sugar tax that has been uh, in, uh, introduced on soft drinks and also the buy one, the ban on buy one, get one free on junk foods would be a bottom-up policy uh, for the food environment to change the food environment. And the top-down policies are providing people with more information to make uh, healthier food choices, but it puts the um, the responsibility on the individual. So for example, ex examples are the traffic light labelings on front of packs and the calorie labeling on menus is also considered to be a top-down policy. So what should the calorie labeling on menus do? It should drive people to purchase and consume less energy. It should educate them about a high energy content of some foods in restaurants. It should reduce maybe the amount of people of the amount of times that people eat outside uh, in restaurants or make them choose healthier options when they go out to eat. Um, it should also uh, lead to a reduced energy intake before or after eating out. And ultimately, it should also motivate restaurants to provide healthier meals, so containing less calories or less energy, or reformulate their me meals into um, less containing calories. So uh, England is not the first country or the only country in which calorie labeling has been introduced. Other countries such as uh, the US, uh, Canada and Australia have also implemented man mandatory calorie labeling. Um, but what is the actual evidence of calorie labeling policy? Um, is it actually reducing uh, the calorie intake or the cal calories being purchased, purchased by people? And so far there have been uh, two systematic reviews conducted and their conclusion was that their uh, overall evidence is very limited. Um, they concluded that some uh, of the studies observed as a uh, uh, decrease in the amount of calories that are purchased and uh, one of the reviews made an estimation that this would be uh, a reduced, a reduced uh, it would reduce the energy intake by almost 8%. Um, and there is also some evidence that food outlets and restaurants are reducing their calorie content based on uh, this calorie labeling. 
but the overall conclusion is also that the quality of the studies that have been conducted so far is low and that there should be more uh, high quality studies and particularly in real-world settings uh, that, uh, that are needed. So how might uh, people with eating disorders uh, be affected? Uh, the calorie labeling uh, on menus might have some negative impact on those who are at risk of eating disorders or who are currently living with eating disorders or, or have lived experience of eating disorders. And eating disorders are currently affecting 1.25 million people in the UK. So to give you a little bit of background on what eating disorders are. So eating disorders are disorders uh, that are uh, characterized by severe uh, disturbances in eating and food intake. And they, those are accompanied uh, by distressing thoughts and cognitions and weight control be behaviors. There are three uh, typical um, uh, eating disorders being binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa. And uh, binge eating disorder is a new, a relatively new uh, disorder. Uh, it's, it's the most common eating disorder and there are the least um, gender differences within this disorder. And with binge eating disorder, uh, people uh, are experiencing uh, binge eating episodes at least once a week. And binge eating episodes are episodes in which uh, people are consuming a very high amount of foods within a short period of time. And while they are also experiencing a uh, loss of control over their eating, so they have the feeling that they cannot stop eating. Um, bulimia nervosa, uh, people who are living with bulimia nervosa also uh, have those similar uh, binge eating episodes. Um, but they are using uh, compensation strategies to um, reduce their the effect of their uh, food intake. So they would uh, per they would use purging or laxatives, um, and then uh, finally you also have anorexia nervosa, and that people with living with anorexia nervosa are having uh, severe body distortions and an extreme fear of weight gain, and it's often accompanied by a low weight status. So there are many physical consequences of eating disorders as well. For anorexia nervosa, this is all related to uh, starvation. It impacts your growth, your organ functionality, and your bone density. And for binge eating disorder, the, uh, a lot of people are also living with overweight and obesity and are um, having those physical consequences that I've explained before. Um, overweight and um, eating disorders are very difficult to treat once they've been fully developed and they have the high, one of the highest mortality rates of all mental health disorder. And that's not only because of the physical consequences, but also because um, there are uh, many sui uh, sui suicides involved. Um, Eating disorders are affecting young people uh, disproportionately. The mean age of onset of eating disorders worldwide is now estimated to be uh, 15 and a half years old, so very young. And the incidence, uh, treatment rates, hospitalizations are rapidly increasing in the UK. Uh, so in the UK, uh, 32 to 42 percent uh, there was a 32 to 42% higher increase than expected during the pandemic among adolescent girls. And between uh, the NHS published that between April and December 2021, uh, 10,000 children and young people started treatment for eating disorders. And ne next to the uh, full eating disorders, uh, disordered uh, eating symptoms, so subclinical levels of uh, eating disturbances are also very common among uh, children and young people and those are very worrying levels and are, uh, people, uh, young people who are experiencing this are also at a high risk to develop uh, eating full eating disorders. 
So um, why, how can exposure to calorie labeling on menus have potential negative consequences? So the focus on calories and weight reduction might increase cognitions and behaviors that may result in uh, disordered eating, including the preoccupation with food and uh, calorie counting, uh, body consciousness and body dissatisfactions levels may, may increase, and it may also promote unhealthy uh, dietary behaviors that are not sustainable, such as skipping meals or um, severe weight control behaviors. Um, and this may be particularly harmful for people who are uh, at risk of eating disorders, for instance, people who are genetically vulnerable, um, or living in sensitive age periods, such as adolescents. Um, and it may also have a negative impact on, on people who are currently living with eating disorders or uh, ha have had eating disorders in the past, as it may impact their recovery, and it might potentially also trigger relapse. So this is uh, why this new policy of calorie labeling on menus has attracted a lot of cons concerns from uh, public health, um, uh, public health, mental health professionals, and eating disorder charities such as Beat Eating Disorders. And uh, Beat Eating Disorders has stated that the focus on calorie counting, uh, which is often a strong compulsive component of uh, eating disorders, may harm people with eating disorders as it might cause anxiety and distress in restaurants and it might hinder their recovery. So because one of the key elements sometimes of treatment is that um, it would allow someone to eat without uh, looking at, uh, at the calories. So in fact, 95% of the people who are living in Scotland with uh, lived experience of eating disorders state that this should will have a negative impact uh, on their lives, according to Beats. So these concerns have also received a lot of media attention, but we want to know um, whether there is also some scientific evidence showing that uh, calorie labeling would potentially be harmful for people living with eating disorders. And to um, uh, Nora will uh, talk more about uh, the scientific evidence. So I will hand over uh, to Nora at this point. So thanks, Mon, for giving such a comprehensive overview of um, not only what the this calorie labeling policy is, but also why it might have negative impacts on um, individuals with eating disorders. Um, and some of you may have come across um, these labels. You may have heard um, about uh, people expressing their views on um, whether they find it's helpful or harmful and how it might relate to their eating practices. But for us as researchers, we are really interested in understanding what is the evidence behind some of these reactions is what we expect to happen actually happening and how are people um, with lived experience of eating disorders experiencing this policy. So I now want to turn to presenting some of the available evidence that um, we have on this. Okay. Um, so to do this, I want to present some findings um, that we have from an systematic review we conducted just a few months ago. So that means we systematically looked through all the literature that's available uh, to date to see what have people found and really kind of combine that to get a good sense of what we know, but also on what we don't know yet. So we focused on studies that were either qualitative or quantitative, um, but they had to look at the impact of some type of um, out-of-home nutrition labeling um, of food or beverages. So that includes the calorie labeling policy that we currently have in England, but also other systems. So it might also be, um, for example, um, some countries have implemented a traffic light system similar to the food packaging, but um, for out-of-home um, foods. Um, so they were included as well. And they had to, studies had to report some outcomes relating to eating disorders or disordered eating. Um, we didn't include studies if they um, 
focused only on prepackaged food, so the foods you find at the supermarket, but they had to be um, specifically in the out-of-home sector, so in restaurants, fast foods, cafes, um, and they had to report at least on some uh, level of disordered eating or include people with eating disorders rather than just focusing on weight outcomes or consumer behavior. So um, you can kind of see our search strategy there, but um, um, you can see the kind of records we screened um, and where we included or excluded uh, studies. But essentially, we ended up with 16 studies in total that met our inclusion criteria and that we then looked um, at in more detail to um, determine what were the findings from these 16 studies. So the 16 studies um, we included were quite different in the methodology they used. So we had five studies that included some experimental design. So typically they would then present people with um, split people into two groups and one group, for example, saw a menu with calorie labels and one group saw um, a menu without calorie labels, you compared them. There were also some studies um, where um, calorie labels were introduced, for example, in a university cafeteria, and they asked people questions before this was introduced, and then say two weeks after to kind of see what were the differences in people. Um, then we had five studies, um, which were cross-sectional studies. These were like your typical survey studies where you just, you ask people a bunch of questions on um, whether they've noticed calorie labels, um, whether they've changed their behavior with calorie labels and what they thought about this. Um, so you may have participated in some of these studies before and this might, design might feel quite familiar. And then there were also six um, what qualitative or mixed uh, method studies. So these are similar to the service uh, studies I mentioned, but they had this focus on a qualitative aspect where they asked people to provide more in-depth information, either through a survey or an interview, um, talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, where they get, um, yeah, I guess, more in-depth information on what people are thinking. Um, in terms of where these studies were conducted, so we, as Yvonne said previously, um, Calorie labels are not unique to the UK. Um, so they have been introduced in other countries um, and um, or similar policies are active elsewhere. So we did see a bit of an international um, spread there, but they were mostly in Western countries. So mostly in the US, Canada, um, or here in the UK, um, with two studies conducted in Saudi Arabia as well. All right. Um, uh, so firstly, I want to present um, um, a summary of the qualitative findings. So as I said, some of these studies asked um, participants more, I guess, in-depth questions about their experiences and got this, what we sometimes call rich data from participants. Um, so what we did is we combined all of this um, information from the different studies to kind of look Overall, what are the themes that are emerging? What type of things are people saying repeatedly? So what are some common threads, I guess, what they're saying to then make sense of these responses? Um, and we came up with five different themes of what people were saying the impact of um, calorie labels or other nutritional labels was. The first one of that was being drawn to calories. Um, so they might say things like that they become hyper aware of the idea of calories. They imagine my body ballooning up. I feel dirty. So a real kind of focus on this caloric intake um, of the food they were maybe thinking about consuming or were going to consume. Another theme that came up was facilitating the eating disorder. Um, so um, respondents there may have said something like, it's definitely set my recovery back by a long way, and I only feel safe eating at home now. So this plays into a little bit of um, the kind of theory that Yvonne presented earlier about 
why this might have a negative impact on people with eating disorders so that these calorie labels um, are, um, I guess, triggering or eliciting something in people that they are um, already struggling with. Um, on the flip side, there was also a theme relating to reassurance. Um, so here participant says, it allows me to go out and eat rather than having meticulously track my calories at home and guess outside. So this is more thinking about um, um, people who were, I guess, keeping track of their calories or finding it reassuring. It took some of the guilt away or made them less anxious because they knew what they were consuming when they were presented with labels. Um, the next theme that came up was really relating to social eating really thinking about eating out in particular being a very social uh, practice um, that we often um, engage with when um, we meet up when we meet up with people it's often to consume a meal um, so this participants here reported a lot of negative impacts on their lives so here someone said one thing the eating disorder loves is isolation and eating out is a more popular thing to do with friends at my age. And now I don't go out. And specific to the UK context, we also saw a theme emerging of frustration. So this was mainly frustration um, at uh, not maybe being listened to or being heard about the concerns that people had for around this policy. Um, so a participant here voiced, for example, that if it's de detrimental to people affected by eating disorders, then what's the point, it being the policy. So you can kind of see from this uh, picture that there are a lot of different responses people are having um, to the policy. Some of these are negative, some of these might be more positive, and um, we can see them there evident in different aspects of people's lives. Um, in terms of some of the quantitative evidence, um, so I just want to highlight this one study um, um, that we can see here. So this was actually um, an eye tracking study that was conducted with people, people and people were split into groups of whether they restrict their eating or not. And they saw you can't, <laughs> it's not as clear but hopefully you can see this a little bit so the menu on the left is the people who restrict their eating um, and the menu on the right is um, one that's read by people who don't restrict their eating and you can see that the um, people who restrict their eating pay a lot more attention to the calories um, than the people who don't restrict and this is again kind of mirrored what we just saw in the qualitative findings as well, where people say they're really aware of these calories or really pulling their focus to it. So we can also see this supported in quantitative evidence that um, people who have um, problems with disordered eating do pay more attention to these calories. Um, and in survey studies, this was also supported in uh, that people who said they engage in disordered eating also said they use the calorie information more frequently than people without disordered eating and <clears throat> they tended to use this information to select lower calorie options. So we can see kind of a thread throughout these different studies that there really seems to be a focus of people with eating disorders or disordered eating on the caloric intake um, and this is different to people without um, disordered eating. Okay, so that's a little snapshot on um, kind of what the evidence at the moment is telling us. But you can see and um, that this is still quite limited in what we know um, about the impact of calorie labels on people with eating disorders. And with any type of public policy um, that's designed to um, especially one um, with this calorie labeling that is designed to uh, support people's health. We do need to really understand um, any uh, potential harms it's causing as well and who it is causing to and the extent of these. Um, and the first step for any of this is to build an evidence base. Um, so 
We do know a little bit already about this, as I just talked about, but we still need a lot more information. Um, so that what I just presented is what we know already, um, but there are some really important gaps. Um, and one really notable one um, is that none of these studies have included people under the age of 18. So no studies have been conducted with children or adolescents. And as one was saying, eating disorders do tend to develop in adolescence. So we're not capturing the impact of people at that stage of their development. Um, and also importantly, young people might be um, vulnerable in really different ways compared to adults. They might eat out differently than adults. They might in, um, view calorie label information differently. Um, so this the impact of one policy may not be uh, the same if someone's um, an adolescent or a child as opposed to an adult. Another gap in the existing studies is that a lot of these focused on restrictive eating. So people who uh, limit um, the amount of food they eat or try to eat um, less. Um, and um, while this is a really important focus and we need to know about that, um, we don't know a lot about people who engage in binge eating, for example, and whether the impact on those people is different. And here, some of the evidence that we have on this, as I said, there's not a lot, but some of what we do have is saying that maybe people who uh, binge eat actually find calorie labels more helpful and it has a more positive impact uh, on them. So by not including them, we're not getting the full picture. And lastly, the other thing we've noticed as, as well, so in our study, as I said, we um, in the review, we would try to be inclusive of different types of policies, um, but most of them were focused, um, had a calorie label policy like we have here in England, but we know that there are different policies out there and we don't really know a lot about how they compare in terms of their impact on people with eating disorders. So we don't know if there's a way of presenting this information that may be more helpful or if there's a way that's less helpful. Um, so knowing not only what each policy is doing, but how policies compare as well. Um, all right, so to counteract that or to address that, um, we are both, so Yvonne and I are both involved in, um, in uh, two separate research projects which are really designed to address some of these questions. Um, so um, on our team, um, which includes Lucy, um, we're talking, uh, we're looking at the impact of calorie labeling policy on individuals with eating disorders. We are specifically um, looking at people who have lived experience, including young people, um, but also their parents and carers, and also asking clinicians. So two groups we haven't heard from in this conversation um, and their experiences and insights. Um, and we're also looking um, at conducting um, mixed methods study um, online for people with lived experience, including subclinical symptoms to try maybe better understand um, some of the differences in why some people are impacted more than others or the different types of impacts. Um, Yvonne's team is also um, doing some great research on the impact of uh, carotid labeling policies, specifically in children and adolescents. Um, which includes um, both the use of um, focus group discussions um, and online surveys to really understand um, how children and young adolescents perceive these policies and how that is affecting them. So hopefully we will have some more answers to these questions soon and we can really start to build this evidence base um, because at the moment there's still a lot we don't know. So thinking more broadly, um, building evidence is obviously a really important first step, but thinking more globally about um, how can we think about these type of policies 
um, and how can we align these two fields um, of obesity prevention and eating disorder prevention. Um, and one, one avenue for this that we haven't explored yet um, is, um, oh, haven't explored today, is the use of bottom-up policies. So Yvonne mentioned at the beginning that the, the food environment could be manipulated in two different ways, a bottom-up or top-down. So the calorie labeling is our top-down um, approach. And it places a lot of focus on the individual. And that is maybe something that um, in the context of eating disorders can cause um, some harms. When we turn to um, bottom-up policies, they tend to focus on the food environment rather than individual food intake um, or individual behavior. So they might be less harmful to people with eating disorders. Um, and indeed, there was a recent study conducted in the um, UK that compared the um, acceptability of these policies um, in people with eating disorders to compare to people without eating disorders. Um, specifically looking at UK policies. So um, there were three policies proposed. Um, some of them have been implemented, some are yet to be implemented. Um, and the two bottom-up policies um, being considered is a ban on advertising of unhealthy foods, drinks online um, before 9 p.m. And on TV. So this is really kind of designed to uh, reduce advertising for foods, especially at times where children uh, might have them. So um, this is similar to other kind of um, health policies where um, you reduce advertising. Um, the second one, uh, is a ban on the one buy one get one free deals for unhealthy foods and drinks um so again something they're both policies that are designed to kind of change the food environment um and when people were asked whether these policies um would make their eating disorder symptoms better or worse um only around two percent of individuals said that um, these bottom-up bottom policies would make their um, symptoms much worse. And most people said it wouldn't have an imp any impact on their illnesses. When we compare that in the same study, they also asked that questions about the calorie labels on menus, so the current policy in place in England. Um, almost 30% of uh, participants with an eating disorder said it would make their symptoms much worse. Um, so that's one of the a few studies that we have where we're actually comparing different types of policies to kind of um, see the different impacts. Um, of, course, of course, we need to not know much more about this, but um, in thinking about um, how to combine these fields going forward um, in terms of next steps. Um, all right, so a lot of information and a lot of um, content, but I think what we're really trying to kind of summarize here is um, that going forward, hopefully there is a coming together of fields between eating disorders and obesity prevention. We can build an evidence base for existing and new policies um, to both uh, looking at the uh, intended benefits, but also potential harms and ensure that any policies, uh, any public health policies are safe for people. Um, and to achieve this, to really bring the two fields together and work on this um, collaboratively um, to provide better policies for people going forward. Um, I think that is all we have. Um, so we'll have some time for questions. But if you want, do want to know more about any of this content or any of the studies I mentioned about the research we have planned going forward, do feel free to contact us um, as well. And I'll hand it over to Lucy. Thank you so much to both of you, uh, to Nora and to Yvonne, for a really fascinating lecture. It's so great to see collaboration between UCL researchers working in eating disorders and in obesity, as there's a bit of a sometimes feeling a bit disconnected from one another. 
Um, so it's really lovely to see you two working together and speaking together. Uh, please do continue to put your questions in the Slido. Um, so you need to go to sli.do and use the tag labels. I'm just looking at the questions. Um, there are a few questions. Um, I'll try and cluster things together so that we answer as many as possible. There's a few questions sort of hinting at the idea that for some people with eating disorders, calorie labelling might be actually helpful at certain stages of recovery. Uh, would either of you like to comment on that? Maybe that's slightly more for Nora. Uh, yeah, thank you, Lucy. I'll, I'll get started with that one. Um, I think that's a really good question and a really important one to answer. And I think we're only just scratching the surface and understanding that. I think a lot of the initial research really looked at is there a difference between people with eating disorders and those without? Um, but if we're looking at people with eating disorders, they're not just one group of people. They have very different experiences um, and we need to think about who is impacted how. And I think um, one of the things there is, um, yeah, that some people might find this helpful. So I think um, I mentioned before that people who um, engage in binge eating um, might find uh, calorie labels helpful, um, but also people at different stages of, of their recovery. Um, so as I mentioned in um, the qualitative studies, we did find a theme around the reassurance. So if people are maybe starting to recover and um, the concept of eating out is still very scary and overwhelming, it can be really helpful for people to have uh, the calorie labels to reassure them or to take away that um, maybe guilt or anxiety. Whereas other people uh, might find it less helpful it find it that it sets their recovery back so there's really it's really complex um and i think it'd be good for us to understand that a bit better thank you yeah i certainly have patients who find it reassuring i think that they can eat out if they're kind of currently trying to restore weight on a kind of calorie counting kind of plan um so i think we it's really important isn't it that the research is designed in an unbiased way to ask about both benefits and um, and, and, and difficulties. There are quite a few questions um, asking about trying to balance the potential costs and benefits of the of the strategy. Um, one person's asking that, um, you know, uh, saying that their patients who are living with obesity are really keen on having calories on menus. And how do we kind of cater for both people with eating disorders who might be harmed and, and people with obesity who might find this really, really helpful? Maybe Yvonne, do you want to start off by answering that one? Yeah, I think that is um, a very nice summary of what the discussion is. And it is very, very tricky if you if it seems like we have those counter effects on for people living with obesity and living people living with eating disorders. And um for what I would always think is that when a public health policy is introduced, it first of all shouldn't provide any harm to any people uh, living um, within our society. And um, therefore, it's very important to first evaluate whether this might be the case. Um, but again, there is a very, yeah, it's very nuanced. And what might do good for some people might not do good for other people. And that debate will always be there, I think. But I think there are also a lot of um, shared uh, factors for obesity, uh, shared struggles for people living with obesity and people living with eating disorders. And I think that there are also definitely a lot of possibilities on um, yeah, uh, providing policies or implement some prevention strategies that would have a beneficial effect for both uh, people with living with obesity and eating disorders. So, um, Thank you. And but of course, these two populations overlap, don't they? It's not just that, that, yes. that these are separate groups. No, or did no, you want a to lot of... add anything? Sorry, I'm sorry, Yvonne, you hadn't finished. Please carry on. There are um, a lot of people um, who are living with overweight or obesity, but also mm -hmm. with uh, eating disorder. So there is uh, there is some quite some overlap there. Yes. Nora, did you have anything to add? 
Uh, no, I think Yvonne summed this up really nicely, but yeah, I think this kind of speaks as well to the importance of the fields coming together and really working with one another and working with people with lived experience from both um, groups to find ways to provide policies that are um, helpful for maybe both or at least not harmful to one group over the other. Um, and yeah, I think especially going forward, focusing on um, kind of targeting shared factors um, could be really beneficial for that. Great, thank you. Um, then there are a few questions that are asking about how people with eating disorders respond to nutritional labelling on packaged foods and whether, I know that's not specifically the topic of your research, but whether you can say anything about that. Um, I'll, I'll start. I think it's a really good question. It's a really tricky question. Um, I'm not um, overly familiar with the literature, but also not aware of too much um, literature looking at it is specifically with packaged foods. Um, so I think it's it would be also really interesting to kind of see what what is the difference between um, the impacts of going to the supermarket and buying something where you have calorie labels and then maybe going to a cafe and grabbing some food where you have calorie labels. Is that different or why is it different? Um, I think one of the aspects that when we're speaking to people about this is really with eating out, it's such a social phenomena and it's really different than if you're going to the supermarket to buy your groceries. Um, so I think that social aspect of it is just one of those things that, um, and we kind of saw that in our, our qualitative research, that that is something that's really impacted. Um, and that is potentially something that's maybe really upsetting to people with it, which you wouldn't have um, in a supermarket. So it might be that it's really negatively impacting people's social connections, which we know are really important when you're trying to recover from an eating disorder, if people don't feel comfortable going out to a restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. And I've certainly had conversations with people about, you know, choosing whether you go to a small restaurant, which doesn't have to have the calories labelled on the menus versus going to one whether, where you know the calories will be there and, and what works best for, for people at different stages of recovery. Okay, um, just looking at the questions, please keep them coming. I'll get through as many of them as possible. Um, okay, so there are um, some, right, let me just have a little look. So we talked about packaged foods. Um, okay, yes, yeah, so a question specifically about the opt-out aspect. So we know that it is possible to request a menu without calories. And somebody's asking whether that is enough to mitigate the potential risks. And I don't know if you've got any any knowledge about whether people do ask for those calorie free menus. Um, that is a really great question. And I I don't know um, whether they they do ask for that, but I think that that could also be perceived as a hurdle um, stating, like expressing that you're basically having difficulties with um, the calories on the menus and I think that might definitely be also an aspect for uh, people living with eating disorders to mm. you know be an extra effort and be uh, something that's also showing the environment that you might deal with that or that it might be difficult for you to cope with uh, calorie labeling on menus so I I don't have any um, updates on or data or any scientific uh um uh, information on this but in that would be my uh, view point of view basically yeah yeah i was thinking particularly for people living in larger bodies that to ask for a menu without yeah. calories might feel like a very difficult thing to do i exactly. don't know if you've got any thoughts nora yeah um yeah i completely um agree that um yeah the extra effort might be d difficult for some people i also think um it also doesn't work for every food venue so for example like coffee shops where you go up and you see the menu uh, there's really that option to walk in and see a different menu so um yeah just thinking about those different alternatives as well yeah it would be so good to ask actually about how often people are asking for those menus i was just thinking about for me whether i would feel comfortable as someone without an eating disorder or an eating disorder history whether i would feel comfortable going in and saying can i have the menu without the calories please and I think I would feel, yeah, a bit 
a bit uh, self-conscious about doing that. So, okay. Um, so there's a question, I think, following up to what you were saying, Yvonne, about um, public policies and harms and saying, you know, it's really important to understand any potential harms, but maybe it's unrealistic to expect that a policy would have no harms to anybody. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Um, yeah, well, that is uh, very difficult, I think. Um, but um, there, I think this uh, particular one, uh, there, there, there has been so much concern raised um, that it's definitely worthwhile uh, to look into this. Um, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I think there are a lot of policies or there, there are potential harmful effects from other policies as well. Um, but um, yeah, it's really, it's just a really difficult type debate and trade-off basically that is up to um, the government um, to decide upon. And we are trying to um, provide the evidence for uh, for this potential harmful effect at the moment, yeah. Excellent. Um, so another really interesting question. Do you think there may be an effect on prevention for people who are at risk? So does exposure to calorie labels increase the risk of people developing disordered eating? And is that one of the things that you plan to explore? Um, yes, I, I think that's a really important question to ask, not only how is it people affecting people who um, maybe have a problem or have a history of it, but also thinking more long term. Um, if someone's continuously exposed to calorie labels, does that kind of set them on a path that maybe triggers other behaviours um, that that then um, kind of spiraling maybe into a long-term eating disorder and obviously that's a question that's much more difficult to ask and we would need a lot more long-term data on this um, which we um, often don't have um, in I know in our work we are trying to also include people who don't just have um, a diagnosed eating disorder but also are experiencing symptoms at the subclinical level to try and understand this question a bit more but um, yeah I think also kind of um, speaking to some of Yvonne's work really thinking about how children and young people are thinking about these policies would be really important to kind of inform that. Yeah absolutely. Um, okay so I'm just thinking what else we've got here. Somebody asking about views on pace labeling. So pace labeling for people who don't know about this is um, labeling where it says the amount of exercise that would be required to burn off the calories in food. And I know that's that's on some packaging, isn't it? And I think it's used sometimes in the US. Are either of you knowledgeable about this? Um, I I don't think there's a lot of evidence on this. So in our systematic review, one study was done on these mm -hmm. kind of physical equivalent uh, labels, but they had very limited um, focus on eating disorder outcomes. So there wasn't a lot we can learn from that. So I think it's definitely something to be explored um, a bit more. So I think, as we said, also, um, yeah, not just thinking about this particular policy, but other types of nutritional label policies to see um, what are the impacts of those and are there ones that are, yeah, particular, beneficial, particularly harmful. Yeah, I think I think getting people into that way of thinking, where the idea is that when you eat something, you then have to burn it off by using exercise is a particularly unhelpful kind of link for people with eating disorders, because, of course, we know that even if you're not doing any exercise, you need calories, you need energy, you need nutrients to just kind of, you know, if you were just lying in bed all day. And so this idea that, oh, well, if I've done this, if I've eaten this amount of food, I need to do this amount of exercise is, is, is pretty unhelpful, I would guess. It doesn't sound like there's very much data on it yet. Okay. Um, I was just thinking about this eye tracking study and that it's such a lovely design and whether we need to do more things like that. I was thinking about, you know, could this be a potential risk factor? People who spend more time looking at the calories than they do looking at the constituents of the of the menu and whether that increases people's risk. That'd be lovely to do if you had the, the time and the money. 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I guess for it to have any impact in the first place, people need to notice it and see it and pay attention to it. So um, yeah, I thought that was quite a neat design flaw. Really clever. Yeah. Then somebody's saying, um, don't all individuals have the right to know what the nutritional value of their food is, whether they're living with overweight, obesity, eating disorders or not? An interesting question. Yeah, I think uh, people definitely have the right to know. Um, I think one thing that we should keep in mind as well is that the, the amount of calories doesn't always reflect the nutritional value of a meal. Um, so it's um, yeah, so it would also be good, I think, maybe if uh, the nutritional value uh, in, in terms of how much fiber or how much protein a meal consists of would also be a very good uh, way to provide uh, information on what you are eating. Yeah. And, and we know that the way that calories in food translates into the energy provided to the body is not simple either, do we? So we don't even know how helpful it is to think about the calories in a food because okay. it seems to depend a lot on how, how easy the food is to digest and you know how easy the, easily the body can access the calories yeah. is my understanding as a non-expert on that aspect of it we've got five minutes left um a couple of questions about sort of government and policy related so one about whether other governments which have calorie labeling have done any of this kind of research or commissioned this kind of research on the impact of people with eating disorders and whether there are things we can learn from them. And then somebody else saying that they understood that the government, UK government, and I think this is in England, isn't it, have already investigated the impact of calorie labeling and, and, that, and that that's um, made, um, resulted in changes to the policy. I don't know if you'd like to comment on either of those. Um, I'm not aware of anything internationally, but that might just be because, um, yeah, just haven't come across it. Um, I definitely know for the UK context, um, so that this policy is obviously in place currently in England um, and um, the Department of um, Social Care and Research did also commission, so the research we're looking into is also funded by um, nationally to kind of look at these impacts. So they're definitely invested in this and knowing about this. Um, the government in um, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are also considering um, these policies um, and um, yeah, are monitoring the evidence um, on them before making further decisions. I don't know whether that is up to or what is happening, but um, that's just from a UK context. So at the moment, the calorie labelling policy is only in England, isn't it? So if you go to Scotland, then there's no obligation to put calories on menus. Is that right? That's right. That's, that's right. Yeah. Um, but speaking to people um, living um, in Scotland, for, for example, they have also reported that since this was introduced as mandatory in England, a lot of the chains do also provide the menus in their um calorie the same calorie menus in other parts of the UK yeah. um so right because it, presumably there are lots of chains that are across across the UK and so they probably just have the same menus everywhere right and even yes. before this legislation there were um restaurants that did include calories on menus didn't they yes just you know chose to do it rather than being mandated to do it Okay, we've got three minutes left. I'm just looking as to whether there are any last minute questions. I, I hope that I've tried to address pretty much all of them. Um, we've talked about prevention. We've talked about balancing the kind of costs and benefits for people from different groups. Ah, we didn't talk about young people um, and anything that, that would be a nice last question um, about what we know about how calorie labeling might affect young people as opposed to adults, both with obesity and with um, eating disorders. Either of you who would like to pick that one up. So um, for young people, as I've presented, um, these uh, eating disorders are typically developing during adolescence. And um, uh, in uh, the specific age group that we are looking at at the moment, um, how the how they perceive uh, calorie men, uh, calorie labeling on menus. Um, 
we uh, we look at the age group from nine to thirteen years of age because that is kind of the moment where children are like developing into adolescence, go into puberty, become more aware of their bodies, um, become more aware of uh, societal influences of. Uh, they might socially compare each other uh, to one another um, in terms of their bodies, in terms of what they look like, their appearance. Um, so um, we are very interested to see and hear how they are uh, perceiving, whether they are noticing uh, the calories on menus, how they perceive them and how that makes them feel. Um, and if that would be different for those who are um, uh, having, for instance, trouble with uh, their body uh, satisfaction, so having a little bit of body dissatisfaction uh, compared to uh, children and adolescents who do not have that. So Wonderful. Um, yeah. Thank you. I hope that you will both come back and tell us about the um, findings from the research that you are um, beginning to do now, because that would be fascinating. Um, we need to bring things to a close. Thank you so much to the audience for your really interesting and useful questions. Um, I just want to mention that the next Lunch Hour lecture will be on the 1st of February, and it's on the role of popular culture for queer teen identities formation in Netflix's sex education. So nobody can say that UCL isn't um, current in the, the sorts of issues it's thinking about. That sounds like a really fascinating topic. Thanks very much to Nora Trumpeter and to Von Dirks for their presentation. And thank you to the audience. And we will see you again. <laughs>